0: So last week, um, we sought to answer three questions as we're working through verses 1 through 5. The three questions were, uh, never fear, right? Because if you didn't write them down, you know that I'm going to revisit the previous week's sermon because the way that uh, we do the preaching ministry here is with an eye towards edification and teaching. So we're, we're bricklaying. We're, we're adding layers week by week by week. Um, <clears throat> so the questions last week were, what are the things above where Christ is? Um, second question was, how do we seek them? And then the third question was, what does it mean that our lives are hidden uh, with Christ, in Christ, rather, with God? Um The answers were pretty straightforward and simple. We saw that the things above are Christ and all that pleases him. That's what's above. That's what's higher up than our earthly preoccupations. We saw that we seek them by setting our minds, which is a purposeful activity, setting our minds on the things above And then we asked three additional questions in the framework of that second answer. How do I seek the things that are above? The three additional questions we asked were, what does your heart desire? That was one. Two was, what has been promised to you in eternity? And then third was, what has your experience with this world and all that it offers been? Uh, because ultimately, comprehending what it means to renew your mind requires you to consider what it is that your mind is already familiar with. Um, ultimately, right, I, if if I don't know where I'm at, I can't figure out how to get where I need to be. I've got to have a starting point. So what's my mind preoccupied with right now? And the easiest way to see that is against the backdrop of everything that God has promised us in eternity. Um the, the treatment of any material object which results in its breaking or decaying must be stopped if you're going to renew that material object. So, if you've got a car and you park it on the street and you never wash it, and you live in Nebraska, it's going to rust to pieces. It's just going to happen because we've got all the salt and grime and stuff from winter time, uh, and there's squirrels that like to chew on wires and. There would be no point in carefully, diligently repairing and restoring that car if you're just going to continue to treat it the same way. So if you're going to restore something like a like a like a car, but like find a garage to park it in, right, so that it can be uh, kept in in good shape. The mind. That's, that's preoccupied with success and personal glory or vengeance or riches or world domination can't be set on the things above where Christ is because that mind is already set elsewhere. So we've got to renew it. We've got to change the way that we think. My point in asking these three additional questions, what does your heart desire? What has been promised to you in eternity? And what has your experience in this world, Ben, my point is to illuminate the landscape of your mind. When you look around your mind, what do things look like? What do you see? What kinds of things do you see? Do you see someone at work or at school whom you hate and want to destroy for for completely legitimate reasons, right? Uh, do you see something there that draws you to indulge your flesh in your mind. We're looking around the mind. Because remember, if you ask the question, um, what does your heart desire? Something pops unbidden into view, right? I don't even have to suggest anything. I just say, what's your heart desire? And you think, what does my heart desire? You'll think of something. And then I say, what's God promised you in eternity? And you're either thinking of the same thing now or you're thinking of something else, right? Right? And, and because of that, you now know what your mind is preoccupied with. So, do you see things there that lead to worldly success and earthly satisfaction? Do you see rust and ruin and, and decay? Is there an abundance of fear and anxiety and worry? Well, then that's not a mind set on things above where Christ is. And I know. Uh, Oh my gosh, how many times do you have to listen to a sermon where the jerk that's got the microphone floats over in front of the pulpit and starts telling you how much better he is than you because his mind's set on the things of God. I assure you that's not what I'm doing. What I do in order to apply these texts of Scripture is I make a list of how I'm doing it wrong. And then I try to identify how the Bible's telling me to do it right. How, what do I need to change? So believe me when I tell you I'm starting with myself. I begin with me. My heart, my mind is too often preoccupied with things that make for fear and anxiety and worry. My priorities too often reflect that of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City and not Jesus Christ. My priorities need to be adjusted. My thoughts need to be changed. So how do we go about setting our minds on things above? And essentially what we saw was that in this life, The first thing you've got to know if you're going to set your mind on things above, the thing you most probably need to be reminded of is that in this life, the Christian does not win. We're not cool. We're not the hero. By any worldly standard, we're a bunch of losers by any worldly standards. So we looked at 1 Corinthians 1 and we read from 18 to 31 to prove it, but I'll just revisit verse 26, 27, 28, 29. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. So there's a great comfort there, right? When you look at your pedigree as a, a human being and you're, you're not a Kennedy or whatever the King of England's last name is, you're of, you're of no consequence relative to the human race. And what Paul is telling you is, and, and God chose you. You're not here by accident. You're not in his family by mistake. God picked you. He wanted you um, because he chooses what's foolish and ignoble. So it's but it's not supposed to be a backhanded compliment. It's just supposed to like like just breathe a little bit. It's okay. You're not awesome. I'm not amazing, and we're not cool looking, right? When I see Hollywood portray the church, I always cringe because I'm like, but that's not our church. I have to be like, well, would it matter? Let's send them a video of our church and have them put that in their movie. And does it look less ridiculous? We're not cool. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So then we turned our attention to verses 3 and 4 of Colossians 3. With all that in mind, we were greatly helped. It says, you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So right now, and for the rest of your life... Um, your life, your victory, your vindication, your rewards, your pleasures forever, your unhindered satisfaction, these things are hidden with Christ waiting for you to finish the race. For, for from now until you die. All of those things I just listed, life, victory, vindication, rewards, pleasures forever, and unhindered satisfaction are waiting for you there, on the other side. They're hidden with Christ. You don't get to have your best life now. You don't. So the rot and ruin of earthly pursuits begins to be revealed, and it begins to stink. You become more and more aware of the stuff down here and how it's just never going to satisfy you. Come on now. I'm not trying to take anything away from you. You can keep your stuff that you like. This isn't me being like, oh, Shame on you for liking nice cars. No, I'm just, I'm saying by contrast, those things aren't worth clinging to and you begin to learn that the very thing that I've set my affection on was given to me in order to draw my affection to God. And now I've I've allowed my affections to terminate on worthless things. There, there, There might be extra hours at work that are necessary. There might be, for sure. That's gonna happen. Diligence calls for additional hours, but the outcome of every earthly treasure is trash. So, like, make sure that it's necessary and not just you chasing after things that are going to burn up. So you turn your eyes upward and you squint a little bit because it's so bright up there where Christ is. And there is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning in righteousness and inviting you to join him in his body. When we look back down from that at the earthly treasure that, we, that we're holding, it should look like feces by comparison. That's the idea. I know, it doesn't. It looks like a nice guitar or a car that runs correctly or like whatever... A healthy kid, whatever you need it to, to, to be. I'm, I understand it doesn't look like doo doo, but when you become preoccupied with Christ, when you get your heart and your mind full of worship and adoration for Him, there's nothing on this earth that you won't let go of in order to be with Him. Step one then, what do you do when you realize you're clinging to feces? Like you've been clutching it, massaging it. It's all caked under your fingernails. It's in the webbing, you know, in in between every finger and your index finger and thumb. You've worked it into all the crevices. But but you didn't know that's what you're doing. And now you look and you go, what do you do? Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. Now I hope with every fiber in my being that I don't have to mention that this is not a list of things you do in order to become a Christian. We spent the first two chapters of Colossians making sure that the cart is not out in front of the horse. This is not a list of things you do in order to be saved. If you've died with Christ, if you've been raised with him, if you're seeking the things above where he is, and you're setting your mind on things above, then you desire honestly to part with what remains of sin. Okay, so in 2015, a man named West, that was his first name, a man named West rescued a pair of lions, which are, uh, they were in this park where lions are bred for the express purpose of being hunted by trophy hunter dentists and pharmaceutical salesmen on vacation uh, from the United States. So a man named West rescues a pair of lions uh, named Demi and Tanner. And he built an enclosure for these two sisters and raised them like pets in his home. They were bottle fed until they were old enough to have meat. And uh, they took to domestic life like kittens. And then eventually, you know, they grew to be 400 pound, gorgeous white lionesses. West's Lions became an attraction. People came to visit because these tame lions, uh, I mean, they were safe. It was safe to have your children around them. West and his wife walked the lions every day and uh, most of his time was spent cuddling with them and wrestling with them and just hanging out with them. They were like children to, to West and his wife. They made good money too. Because over 2,000 people paid to come and interact with the lionesses on West's farm. In 2017, though, a man named Justice was splitting wood on a property adjacent to uh, the West's. And Tanner and, and Demi climbed a tree, jumped over their electric fence, Uh, off of their property and mauled Justice ultimately to death. Now, West blamed Justice for the incident, saying the man made the mistake of running away from the lions, and that's why they attacked him. Uh, And since Justice had some other health issues, the provincial health department said his death couldn't be fully attributed to the lion attack. So the lions lived on. I wonder if West made the same mistake in 2020 when on his daily walk with his two lionesses, they mauled him and killed him. I mean, I hope he didn't run away because that would make him a hypocrite as well as an insane person, right? I will never be photographed smiling nervously next to a domesticated predatory animal while on vacation and neither will anybody in my care. It's not gonna happen. I think it's idiotic. Now, you're free to do it, and you're free to disagree with my assessment of this activity. But watching the seven-year-old white tiger named Manticore attack Roy of, of Siegfried and Roy in 2003 told me and everyone else on Earth, with an ounce of common sense at the time, everything we needed to know about domesticating lions, right? You don't domesticate wild animals simply by raising them from infancy, and neither do you domesticate your remaining sin. When you have seen Jesus by faith and seen the grossness of human depravity by contrast, what you want more than anything is to part with sin and all of its trappings. Sin, the Bible teaches, does not disappear from you when you become a Christian right? We know this, right? It remains like this dark and dangerous passenger aboard your life until the day you get off the boat at your last stop, and your life and sin in it departs. That's when you're done with sin, and not before that. So even though you're a Christian, you've still got this passenger. The good news is, for the Christian, on your boat of life, sin is no longer the captain. Sin is now just another passenger. Sin no longer sits on a throne, for Christ has come and removed sin and taken the throne. It belongs to him. From the moment you embrace Jesus by faith, you become mortal enemies with sin. Galatians 5, 17. Ready? Should be familiar by now. The flesh and the spirit are at war. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Romans 7, 18, and 23. I know, this is Paul, the apostle, who wrote a lot of the New Testament. Romans 7, 18, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. In 23, he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. My favorite though I don't often quote it, is 1 Peter two eleven, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So it's warfare. Like a terrorist, sin engages in guerrilla warfare. Traps, snares, and landmines are strewn all around your spiritual path. The devil, the world, and your flesh are constantly trying to undo what the goodness of God is working out in your heart. We have enemies. The problem is, you're one of them, right? I don't get to blame everything I do on the devil, and I don't get to blame everything I do on the world around me, because some of it, I come up with all on my own. Because sin is a passenger with me until the day I depart this life. And I hate it. Any disruption which can be created in your fellowship with God is a victory for the enemy. And so what sin wants, if we can give sin, you know, if we can personify it a little bit, would be for your hands to be continually caked in guilt. Now that you've seen it for what it is, you simultaneously hate sin and still desire it. That's the reality. So Paul writes a full chapter of what doesn't work. Um these things that have the appearance of wisdom, right? Self-made religion. Do-it-yourself righteousness. Asceticism, severity to the body. They they have the appearance of wisdom, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. But we understand why we might think that it does, right? Well, if sin is, is simultaneously something that I hate and something that I want, then the destruction of me would certainly bring an end to the sin. So let me punish myself. Let me put on a hair shirt and whip myself and tighten the salis belt around my thigh. Nope, nope, no. No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And now in verse five of chapter three, we continue to learn what does work, what does kill sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impure passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So there's, I think, four things listed here, um, and all of them are called idolatry. Sexual immorality is first. Pretty clear. I mean, let the ancient language experts split hairs with me over which Old Testament laws are defunct and which ones are not. Because in one sense, none of them are, but in another sense, Christ definitely declared some things clean and and, and, and and in no way can you make the argument that Jesus Christ came to abolish morality. He did not. He came to fulfill it, right? So the, these laws still stand as a... a, a well, they do a few things, but one of the things that the law still does for the Christian is it guides us in acts of obedience and things that please God. So marriage is the, the prescribed covenant relationship in which sex is supposed to exist. If I could, some of the anger, the righteous anger that I have in my heart, well, I know it's not righteous because I want to hit people, but it, it starts righteous and then it gets perverted. But it's directed at these people who say things like, well, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, there never would have been sexual relations. Humans would have just procreated like the angels. What even does that mean? The angels don't procreate that I know of. And God did not, or the devil certainly didn't come and stick something on us after we became sinful God made these things, but he, he put them in a framework where they're glorifying to him and safe for us and a blessing to human flourishing in relationships. So, so marriage is that covenant relationship between one man and one woman. That's the ideal. And that's where sexual relationship is supposed to happen. So sex outside of that context is sexual immorality. And what we're supposed to do, according to Colossians 3, 5, is put that to death. Kill it. Impure passion. Um, You'll notice, if you look carefully at your Bible, I have taken the... The liberty of retranslating this because what you probably have is sexual immorality, comma, impurity, comma, passion, comma, evil desires, comma, and covetousness. There are two words here, and one of them is never, excuse me, sinful in and of itself. So in the Greek, you, come on, half of you already know this. So the other half probably know it too and just have forgotten it. Pathos. Is the affections, it's the emotions. There's nothing intrinsically sinful about pathos anywhere in the Bible. So there's two words, and I think one is supposed to modify the other because the word that comes before pathos is, is, uh, is t- all right, there's no punctuation in the original text. We don't know where the commas are supposed to go. So the translators are putting them in, like using the most common sense and contextual clues that they can find. They're not always right, in my humble opinion, having never been to translating school, all right? So take this for what it's worth. But in Romans 1.26, you have the same word, pathos. And before it, a word that's used to modify it. For this reason, Romans 1.26 says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So, what I believe this should say is impure or unclean affections in in Colossians 3. It's not just affections, it's not just passions. Passions are bad. Don't ever be passionate. No, no. Be passionate. Make sure you're passionate about the right things but most certainly you should have affections and emotions engaged in whatever you're doing. I'll tell you at, at like no extra charge sometimes you're going to know what the what the best thing to do is and your heart's not really going to be in it, right? But then, but because you're so mature, you're like, all right, let me just go ahead and get involved in the right thing here. And lo and behold, as you get oriented that direction and start doing it, your emotions catch up. You get into it as you're doing it. However, dishonorable or unclean or impure affections or passions are those, I think, which rise unbidden. Uninvited, unplanned on. So you can be gripped by a desire that just consumes you. This might happen when someone offends you in traffic. Now you're passionate, right? This might happen when someone is trying to seduce you. This might happen when someone shares some gossip about you with you. You ever had that joyous experience? Hey, I was talking to so and so and they said, You're something negative. Lovely. I wish, I wish I didn't know that. What you're supposed to do in that moment when that passion rises unbidden is kill it. Put it to death. Don't nurse it. Don't bottle feed it. Don't try to domesticate it. Kill it. Evil desire. This is trickier because evil is something we ascribe to the IRS and the tyrants that control it, Right? <laughs> A better word might be injurious, harmful, or dangerous desire. Harmful desires don't always appear to be harmful at first. And I cannot calculate in America, based on the national debt, how many debts are the result of dangerous desires. But how many swipes of the credit card were the result of you deciding you needed something which you only actually wanted and only really even knew about moments before you swiped the card? How many marriages? How many marriages have been maimed over concupiscence generated by the internet? I'm being as vague as I can here. That word, by the way, uh, means well. It usually has a sexual connotation to it, but it means profound arousal the desire concupiscence that's the word never mind the desire to live in the, <laughs> the internet <laughs> the desire to live in the mountains or on a beach is not sinful amen okay i agree why do we live here <laughs> When Tristan Ludlow left Susanna Fincannon pining away in Montana because he needed to go find himself roaming the globe in the greatest movie made in the 90s, Legends of the Fall. Or the prodigal son, so-called, demanded his inheritance before his father had passed. Or a wife has fled her husband for no reason other than because she needed more excitement. Or a husband has abandoned his family because you need it to freedom. I promise you these things started with a fleeting thought. It's the indulgence of that thought that leads to evil. So when you have the fleeting thought, put it to death. Take it out behind the barn and shoot it. That's what Paul's calling us to do. Now, I didn't put up a picture of Demi and Tanner when they were kittens or cubs, but they were pretty cute. But I would argue some human suffering could have been avoided if we just like cut them loose in the wild or give them the old yeller treatment, covetousness. To covet a thing is to believe you are more entitled to it than the person who has it. I'm going to say that again. To covet a thing is to believe that you are more entitled to something that someone else has than they are. This could be a position at work. could be first chair. This could be varsity. This could be someone's wife or husband. But you are so sure that you would be a better caretaker than the one who possesses whatever it is. That's covetousness. Put it To death. All of these things appear harmless when they're kittens. And who wants to kill a kitten? Serial killers do that kind of thing. So here's what the world and the flesh and the devil do. They show you sexual immorality as a harmless kitten. They show you impure passions as a toothless cub. They present harmful desires. Those fuzzy little baby. They offer you harmful desires and covetousness as though it's just a mewing infant feline you must learn to see these things for what they become you must learn to put them to death and if it were easy this sermon and this passage of scripture wouldn't be necessary amen it's not easy so verses six and seven there's some incentive on account of these the wrath of God is coming All the Reformed people are like, yes. (laughs) And these, you also once walked when you were living in them. So there's two reasons Paul gives why these things should be put to death. You with me? Is everybody still with me? The world, the flesh, and the devil will tell you that Christian morals are antiquated, unenlightened, bigoted, intolerant, and judgmental. The world, the flesh, and the devil will tell you that Christian values are antiquated, unenlightened, bigoted, intolerant, and judgmental. It's hate cloaked in religion. Okay. Uh, Try this out with me. In post-Christian America, let's consider what is sexual immorality in our culture? Find me something that should be prohibited according to the morals of our society. I mean, how would the world even define sexual immorality without, in the dictionary first, putting an antiquated Christian concept of and then define sexual immorality? Nothing sexual is immoral when there is no morals, right? Impure passion, what's that? What's that in 2023? Like, follow your heart has been the anthem of our society since the 1960s. You'll hear it to this day. I promise, you just got to follow your heart. All right, well, And who are you to tell somebody that their heart is an idiot? What gives you that right? Harmful desires. The only harm you can do in, in, in the United States in 2023 is that of keeping someone from whatever their heart tells them is right. That's the only harm you can do. Be intolerant. Covetousness, okay? There goes the entire advertising industry. Want to look like this? <laughs> All of that to say one thing, okay? And that's this. You cannot argue using our culture's standard of morality. You cannot argue for a killing of sin and what remains of it. It's not practical anymore. I can't reason our culture out of sinning by yelling about the dangers of living a life of self-indulgence. If I see you on the corner. Second in Maine with a sandwich board that says, Repent, the wrath of God is coming. I'm going to point and laugh at you because what you're doing is not effective in a culture which has completely abandoned any semblance of moral fiber. It doesn't work. You just look ridiculous. Now, would it be technically true? Would the sandwich board be accurate? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the wrath of God is coming. That's what the text says. But if I can't convince our culture that immorality is going to bring about the wrath of God because they're convinced God doesn't exist, then what I have to do is live my life in such a way that reminds them he does exist. No matter how hard they want to deny it, it's got to be that when they look at me, they go, oof, there might be some truth to what he thinks. That's all I can do. So this warning is not meant to frighten anyone into obedience. Besides, Galatians already proved to us that that doesn't work. right? Um, So why does Paul include this tidbit about the wrath of God? I think because we as Christians need some incentive to put these things to death in our own lives. Uh, That that does not mean, mean, look right at me, That does does not mean that you are at some risk. If you are a Christian, it does not mean that you are at some risk of abiding under the wrath of God. I have to say it. I'm going to say it four more times because I have to because most of you didn't even bother to look at me when I asked you to. That does not mean... For on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Does not mean that if you are a Christian, you should be fearful that you're going to be dealing with the wrath of God. Because that's what propitiation means. Jesus absorbed all the wrath of God on the cross at Calvary. It's either that, or he didn't do enough. So God is not coming to pour his wrath out on you if you are in Christ. Right? However, however, unbelievers will be dealing with the wrath of God. And I, you know, I just, unless we're going to become completely self aware, unaware, completely unself aware on Judgment Day, I think it might be a little awkward, just a scotch. If you, having lived your life with almost no recognition of the necessity of putting sin to death, if you are standing there justified while somebody that lived exactly like you is on their way to hell, that's going to be a little awkward for you. I made no effort to crucify sin in my mortal flesh. The only difference between me and them was I had faith in Christ Jesus and they did not that I don't want to be among that company of people. They're still going to be in heaven, albeit, as one theologian said, with singed leg hair, which I don't really believe, but it paints a vivid picture. They're still going to be in heaven, but I want to be there, and I want, as I'm weeping over the lost being cast into hell, I at least want to know their blood's not on my hands, because I was putting sin to death in my mortal flesh as a Christian, because I hate it. I don't want to give anyone the impression that forgiveness and mercy and grace and love for God have from God have done nothing to change my life. I don't want to give anyone that impression. And if my life looks no different than the world around me, how will they ever have an opportunity to hear the gospel? Why would they ask? James gets drunk, looks at porn, cheats on his wife. Yeah, that's the person we want to go talk to about Jesus. Why would they? The second part's more practical. When I was seven, I took my bike. I believe it was on Christmas Day. In the Philippines, you could ride your bike on Christmas Day. You also couldn't have a Christmas tree because it was the Philippines. We had a Christmas tree. We put it up. We went, I think, to the BX. We came home all of the needles were off the Christmas tree because we'd put it in a window that faced south. And it's the Philippines. Anyway, so Christmas Day, I've got my brand new bike. And I'm like, I haven't taken this thing off any sweet jumps. So we got to make that happen. So I got it up to max speed. And they had, and you see these now more and more in the United States. Instead of speed bumps, they had speed humps. They were like 10 feet, you know, wide humps. Got to go on as fast as I could. Pulled up at just the right moment. Went up in the air. And because I'd never done a jump before, it didn't occur to me that I needed to keep the handlebars straight. And so the handlebars ended up like this. It's like, uh. <laughs> and so then when the bike hit the ground, the wheel was going this way, and I went that way. And that was my second concussion in my life. I was knocked unconscious. I've never turn my handlebar while taking my bike off a sweet jump again. Never. Once was enough. When Matt and Hillary were newly-ish married, this had to be after 2005 because Lisa and I lived over in Millard at this point, Matt uh, one evening handed her a loaded gun and told her to clear it. So she aimed it towards the floor and pulled the trigger. The bullet ended up in the townhome next door. So, a couple of hours and a few police officers later, they knew that she hadn't killed anybody or injured anybody. But Hillary was cited for negligence and ordered to appear in court. Uh, you can imagine the potential guilt for Matt in this situation, right? It's kind of his fault. And she's the one getting cited because she's the one that pulled the trigger. Matt has never handed Hillary a loaded handgun again without warning her that it's loaded. And Hillary will never point any gun at anything she doesn't intend to destroy and pull the trigger. Thankfully, the powers that be realized she wasn't a hardened criminal and she didn't end up doing any time. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But they will never make those mistakes again, and you can think of things in your life that you just need to do experience one time. So you're like more careful around the oven than you were the first time you burned yourself messing around with it. Doesn't mean you don't still make mistakes, but you're more cognizant. You're aware. So Paul offers this this. Reminder that the, the wrath of God is coming on account of these things and, oh, by the way, at one time you walked in them. You've been there and done that. You have no reason to do it again. It doesn't apply to everybody, though, because some people come up in church just kind of loving Jesus. And you hit 15, 16, 17 years old and you're like, hmm I never walked in any of that. Guess I better. No. No, you shouldn't. Not anymore. We've set our sights on heaven where our lives are hidden with Christ, which means we see sin for what it really is and we know better than to try to domesticate something which invites the wrath of God. I'm going to make, I'm going to sin in a way that, that doesn't wound Christ. No, you're not. All sin wounds Christ, or he wouldn't have had to come and die. So this is where we begin to get a practical list of the outcome of genuine faith. And over the next few weeks, obviously, if you read ahead, you'll see that we're going to expand this list. We will learn afresh what not to do Uh, (laughs) I hate saying that. I don't know how else to say it. None of these are things we do in order to become a Christian, okay? But we will learn afresh what not to do if we are a Christian. Because we need the reminder. We need to be persuaded. But first is this. Put to death what remains of sin. Do not try to domesticate it because it will kill you. All right, let's pray.